Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was first given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon as a part of the Dealing with Your Past series. Hey, everybody. Good e- well, there you are. Good evening. The five was sleepy, but you are awake. Well, well done. Hey, it's great to see you. If you're new or visiting, my name is John Mark, and I'm one of the elders here at Bridgetown Church. It's really, it feels weird to say as a young guy, but some of you are really young, and I am. You're like, you are an elder. Well, okay. Um, it's great to see you, and uh, if you're over the age of 30, may your tribe increase. We just want you, yeah, may your tribe increase. But welcome. Great to have you. Um, Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. Our church, as Gerald said before, is built around this idea of practicing the way of Jesus together in Portland. So every two months, we take on a practice from the life and teaching of Jesus of Nazareth. And we teach on it here on a Sunday, and then we go work it out in our Bridgetown community. We just wrapped up the practice of silence and solitude. And before we move on, I just wanted to say one quick thing. If you've not already done this, please, in the next few days or over the next week, sit down with your journal or your calendar open and make a plan to continue that practice as you move forward. We really believe that silence and solitude, it's the most hard, it's the most difficult for a lot of people, but it's also the most important of all the practices of Jesus, in part because it's kind of the foundation that you erect the house of your apprenticeship to Jesus off of. It's the space where you do a lot of the other practices, prayer and fasting and Bible reading and a ton of stuff that we'll get into over the next year. So you really want to lay that foundation well. So all that to say, please, it's essential that you work it into the rhythm and routine of your life in order to move forward. That said, our next practice is dealing with your past. Come on. If you're excited about that, something is really wrong with you. That's sick. That's twisted, you know. Um, A few nights ago, my wife T and I were, um, we were cooking. So it's kind of, we're Portlanders, and so we love to eat. And uh, we really love to cook together. And by that I mean, my wife is the chef. I'm more like the sous chef. I chop and multitask, like, really well, okay? She's the creative genius. But we had set aside a night. I had the night off, and we said, hey, let's take an hour or two and make kind of a vegan feast from scratch. So we made soup and an appetizer and bread, all from scratch and all plant-based and all that stuff. And so really looking forward to it. We get into it. We're about 45 minutes into meal prep, and I realize that we're missing a few ingredients. And uh, Tammy had gone to New Seasons that afternoon to pick up everything for the meal. We made a plan together. But my wife and I are very different, okay? So a little backstory. I come from what sociologists call a cold culture. And that's not cold like mean. Well, sometimes it is. But... um, meaning like American, Western, linear, uh, for me, I'm white, like that kind of a culture, where a recipe is something you follow, okay? Like it's there for a reason. Um, My wife, on the other hand, comes from what sociologists call a warm culture. If you know her, she's amazing. So she's Latino or family of origin, all of that's right. 
season, whatever, that's her thing. And, and in her family of origin, in her cultural background, you know, rules are more like suggestions. And time and space are all kind of relative, you know? And, and so we get to this moment, and I realize we're missing two or three ingredients. And I'm 45 minutes in, and we're just about halfway through the meal prep. It's a lot of work. And Tammy says, well, just, you know, swap it out. I just thought, you know, swap it out for this, that, or the other. And I'm thinking, swap it out? White people don't do that. I'm sorry. Like, no. Like, the, the recipe says, and you're there, and you're at New Seasons, and you just thought to save five bucks, what? And so we get into a, you know, a little tiff. Not a, not a war, more of a border skirmish, you know, between husband and wife. And, and really, the root issue there, when we were able to work it out, and we sat down, and the meal was amazing. But when we sat down to dinner, we were both humming with a little bit less than love and affection for each other. And something like that, it was a minor infraction, but something like that happens to Tammy and I every single week. And nine times out of ten, the root issue, it's something stupid. The root issue is that I was raised one way, and she was raised another. I grew up in this kind of a culture. She grew up in that kind of a culture. Now, I tell you that story because I think it does a great job. It's a non-dramatic, everyday example. If you have a husband or wife, you're like, yes, I get it. Hopefully, maybe that's just my psychosis. But it does a great job of capturing a truth that cuts across the library of Scripture and the fabric of the universe. And that is, your present, our present is shaped by our past. Put another way, who you are is shaped by where you come from. There is a direct line of sight, a cause and effect relationship between your family of origin, the culture that you were born into, your socioeconomic upbringing, key events in your childhood and adolescence, everything from trauma, like the death of a mom or a dad or divorce or abuse, to great things like uh, you know, you were born into a Jesus-following family, or um, you moved to a new school and you discovered a sport that you fell in love with, or a scholarship to a great college, or whatever. It's a direct line of sight from our past to our present, from where we come from to who we are. But without a doubt, the single greatest influence on the vast majority of people is our family of origin. Now, when I say family of origin, don't just think about mom, dad, and your sister or brother. By family of origin, I mean your entire extended family going back three to four generations. There is both scriptural and scientific evidence for that time frame of three to four generations. Dr. Rachel Yehuda is a pioneer in a new field of research called epigenetics, and there's controversy around it, but it's really starting to get traction. The basic idea behind epigenetics is that your genetic code is shaped in part by the environment you grow up in, meaning you aren't just the byproduct of the genes of your mom and your dad and your grandma and your grandpa, right? Mom was, you know, white or Latino or black, and she was 5'5 five five and type A, and so I'm kind of that way as well. Your genes 
are also shaped by your family experience. Did you grow up in wealth or poverty? Was there trauma or not? What was your generation like? What did you live through? That actually, you are shaped at a genetic level by your environment. Yehuda did a study at New York Mount Sinai Hospital of Holocaust survivors, and first she isolated a stress hormone found in the survivors of a concentration camp, but then she tested their children, and then she tested their grandchildren, and she found the exact same stress hormone in all three generations meaning the trauma of that experience was literally passed down in the genetic code of the next generation and the next. Because when something is not dealt with, in particular emotional pain, it does not go, it does not die. It just goes into hiding and it lives on, for some people, for years to come. But tragically, as we grow up and enter adulthood, and a lot of you are at that transition point now, as we grow up and enter adulthood, we are often blind or worse in denial to the ways in which we have been shaped by our past. I think of the philosopher George Santana's well-known line, those who cannot learn from the past, what? Are doomed to repeat it. There's truth in that. Until we see the ways that we have been shaped by our past, we will, the odds are high, that you and I will unintentionally mirror and mimic the patterns of our family of origin and our culture for better and for worse. And so this has profound implications for our apprenticeship to Jesus. Some of you are thinking, you know, this is great, but like, this is church. Isn't that something more for therapy? Well, yes and no. For starters, I think there's a ton of overlap if there's any overlap at all between good, healthy, robust therapy and spiritual formation or apprenticeship to Jesus. But we deeply believe that emotional health and spirituality are interconnected, joined at the hip. Pete Scazzaro uh, is a pastor from the East Coast, the writer um, of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, a book that has really played a key role, has really shaped Bridgetown Church and our culture. He writes this, in emotionally healthy churches, people understand how their past affects their present ability, and make sure you pay attention here as a disciple of Jesus, to love Christ and others. We'll talk more about that later. They've realized from scripture and life that an intricate, complex relationship exists between the kind of persons they are today and their past. Numerous external forces may shape us, but the family we have grown up in is the primary and, except in rare instances, the most powerful system that will shape and influence who we are. As the saying goes, Jesus might live in your heart, but grandpa lives in your bones. And so does grandma, and so does that weird uncle on your mother's side. It's all in there. So one of the first tasks of our apprenticeship to Jesus is dealing with our past. We have to go back and identify the patterns that we inherited from our family of origin and our culture or the coping mechanisms that we developed to deal with emotional pain from our family of origin and our culture and we have to identify where they are out of sync with the way of Jesus and break those patterns in order to go forward in our apprenticeship to Jesus. Now, before we get into it, I, just, I know this raises all sorts of red flags for a number of you. And I'm guessing in my mind's eye there are at least two or three objections that you're feeling right now or thinking. Um, let me call out three groups. First, some of you are thinking, wait, isn't it bad to revisit the past? 
Is it like, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I'm saved, and the past is the past. Should, should not I kind of move on? And I get that. I grew up in a church culture where, you know, there was a very low view of emotional health, and therapy was, you know, for you if you were a failure, basically. And, um, and, and, and in that kind of culture, if anything from your past were to come up, guilt and shame over an abortion, a promiscuity, or an affair, or our marriage gone awry, or abuse of any kind from your childhood, or failure at this, that, or the other, or a wound from a father or a mother, or some, any kind of pain from your past, any kind of emotional pain would come up. We would immediately quote to you this line from Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, chapter three. Some of you know it, where Paul writes, forgetting what lies behind, I press on toward what lies ahead. Any of you? Anybody else? Was that just me? Yeah, okay. And, and there's all sorts of, and that was basically just code for we don't really want to go there with you, okay? But there's all sorts of problems with that. Um, the main one is that's not at all what Paul is saying. If you want to read the Bible well, there are three rules, okay? Rule one is context. Rule two is context. Rule three is context. I have a master's degree in that, um, <laughs> by the way. And uh, if you go back and read that line in context, Paul is not saying, he, the past that he's referring to is not his family of origin or trauma from when he was seven years old and dad walked out on the family. Not at all. What he's re- the past he's referring to is all the wealth and the privilege that he gave up when he became a follower of Jesus. Paul was an up-and-coming rock star. He was a Jewish rabbi on the fast track for success. He was on the Sanhedrin, the highest ruling body in Israel, power, authority, I mean, everything that comes with it. And he gave all of that up to become an apostle, a full-time, like, preacher of the gospel of Jesus, living in abject poverty, no family, on the road for the rest of his life, from city to city, working with his own hands as an artisan or a tent maker, beat up on a regular basis, in jail for years of his life, rejected by the Jewish establishment, on and on. Paul is saying, listen, I gave, I gave that life up, that wealth, that privilege, the cush kind of middle-class comfort, I gave that up. And I'm not looking back. I'm looking forward to my identity and God's call in my life. That's what he's saying. Not, I'm not dealing with pain from 20 years ago. Not at all what he's saying. But even if he was, and he's not, but even if he was saying that, the problem is that a lot of us just can't forget our past. Even if we wanted to. It's there. Like a ghost in the attic of our mind or imagination. And it won't go away. Now, the second objection that I'm guessing a number of you are thinking right now, is, you know, um, I don't think it's bad to revisit the past, but I don't think I need to. My family of origin is fantastic. I come from a long line of awesome. <laughs> and I get that. I come from a great family, uh, amazing mom and dad. My parents literally travel all over the world doing a parenting conference um, so that people can have children like me. <laughs> and, um, but here's, here's the deal. <laughs> no matter how great your family of origin is, your mom, your dad are, at some level, every family is dysfunctional. Am I right? I don't care how great your family, my guess is if I were to hang out with you guys for Christmas, there's stuff there. Am I right? Like there's at least a little bit there. 
All of us walk into adulthood with at least a little bit of emotional baggage from our family of origin. As a dad, oh my gosh, I hate this. I have three children, Jude, Moses, and Sunday, and I hate it because I know that no matter how hard I try, I will mess up with my children. No matter how hard I try, I will wound them, I will hurt them, I will shape them in ways that are contrary to or at odds with the way of Jesus. Um, and hopefully I will pass on a lot of good. I will do far more good in their life than bad. I will pass on far more blessing um, than sin. But I'm well aware of the fact that I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm a work in progress. And so I will screw up along the way. I will make mistakes. In fact, honoring your parents doesn't mean turning a blind eye to their mistakes at all. In fact, one of the best ways to honor your parents is to identify all that was good from your family line, cut out anything that you think is bad or out of line with the way of Jesus, hopefully add in more good, take the story forward, and and move that family legacy in the right direction. Finally, last objection. Some of you are thinking, no, it's not that I think it's bad or that I come from a great family. It's that, man, the exact opposite. I don't come from a great family, and I'm just not up for it. That is a can of worms, and I am not ready to go there. And if that's you, that's okay. This is a safe place. If you want to just kind of sit this one out or kind of watch from a distance, that's okay. Just realize, as I said before, that if you don't deal with your past, in particular emotional pain, it will not go away. It will just go underneath the surface. And all you can do if you don't actually deal with emotional pain is medicate it through the drug of distraction. Whatever your drug of choice is, overwork, or over school, or over play, or food, or drink, or alcohol, or pot, or Netflix, or social media, or substance abuse, or Bible study, and church, and podcasting, whatever your thing is, best case scenario, but you'll spend your life managing symptoms because you're too scared to deal with the root cause. So go on this journey when you're ready. No pressure or guilt trip from me. But if you're tired of symptom management via distraction, and I think you're ready to take the next step. So um, first for tonight, let me lay out a biblical theology of generational sin, and then we'll start to chat about how to break it. So Genesis chapter 12, this is a well-known story. Let's read it again. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord, or Yahweh in Hebrew, had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household, so abandon your family of origin, to the land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. I will start a new family line with you, and I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as Yahweh had told him. In this story, God calls an obscure desert Bedouin by the name of Abram that we know nothing about at all to become an agent of his blessing. In Hebrew, the word is baruch. His baruch to all of the world, a conduit, a go-between for the life-giving, healing, blessing of the creator to flow to the creation. And Abraham in the story, he gave up everything, family of origin, wealth, privilege, all of that to follow God's call in his life. Amazing man of faith. But that does not mean that he had it all together. Skip down to verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, 
And Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. And before you think, oh, what a sweetheart. Nope, he's buttering her up. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake. He's manipulative. And my life will be spared because of you. Okay, you see how dysfunctional that relationship is. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that Sarai was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, male and female servants, a simple IRA, a Roth IRA, stock in SNAP and all of that, right? But Yahweh inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you lie to me and say she's my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Gotta love that, you know? Just women were treated so well in that day and age. Now in the story, Abram tells his wife to lie about the true nature of their relationship which put her at risk in order to save his own neck and to make a whole lot of money. Nice guy. Father of faith. But that's just the beginning. Turn over to chapter 20, a page or two to the right. Chapter 20. Fast forward a few years down the road. Chapter 20, verse 1. Now Abraham, so Abram's renamed Abraham, Sarai's renamed Sarah. God is at work in this family. Abraham moved on from there to the region of the Negev, back up in kind of Israel, and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, she is my, wait for it, sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. In the story, Abimelech has a dream. God basically says, don't you touch her, um, and all this stuff. Eight, early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all of his officials, and when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, why have you done this to us? Have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me in my kingdom? You have done things to me that should never be done. And the story goes on. Notice that the exact same thing happens again. Meaning what? Meaning this isn't a one-time slip-up. An Abrahamic, whoops, This is a deep, ingrained, ongoing, inset sin in Abraham's life. And it's passed down from father to son, from one generation to the next. Turn over to chapter 26. Abraham has two sons, um, but they are from two different mothers. It's a whole other story. And they don't get along because Isaac is the favorite. Chapter 26, verse one. Now we read a story about Abraham's son, years later. Now there was a famine in the land. Anybody have deja vu already? Besides the previous famine in Abraham's time, and Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. Okay, there we are again. Yahweh appeared to Isaac and said, don't go down to the land of Egypt, live in the land which I tell you. So he stayed in Gerar, verse six, verse seven. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, his wife's Rebecca, she's beautiful as well, he said, she is my what? Sister. 
dad, that was a great idea. Because he was afraid to say, she is my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah because she is beautiful. When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac having a really great time with his wife, Rebekah. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and he said, she really is your wife. I hope. I hope. Why did you say she is my sister? Isaac answered, because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. And the story goes on. Notice, Isaac does the exact same thing as his father in the exact same city with the exact same king. It's almost like there are children who repeat the same mistakes as their parents. Can you imagine stupid people like that? What are they thinking? I would never do that. And guess what? It's passed down to the next generation, from father to son to grandson. Turn over to chapter 27, one page to the right. Isaac also has two sons, but twins, Jacob and Esau. They don't get along at all because Jacob is the favorite of his father, Isaac. Have a look at this. It's a very long, in-depth story. Let's just read an excerpt. Chapter 27, pick it up in verse 18. Jacob went to his father and he said, my father, Yes, my son, he answered, who is it? Isaac at this time is elderly and he's blind, okay, which was a common problem in the Middle East. Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. Blatant lie. I have done as you told me. Please sit up, eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing to manipulate his dad. Isaac asked his son, how did you find it so quickly, my son? Notice the spiritualized crap right here. Yahweh, your God, gave me success, he replied. And the story goes on, and Jacob lies straight to his dad's face. And by the way, this lie, if you know the story, is the first of many. Jacob essentially becomes a con man. In fact, his name, Yaakov in Hebrew, is a Hebrew word picture or euphemism that means a con man, a liar, a thief, a cheat. So my point here is that this generational sin, not only does it live on, but it's getting worse, not getting better. In fact, it even lives on in Jacob's children. Now we're into generation four. Turn over to chapter 37, last story, chapter 37 to the right. Okay, now fast forward. Jacob has not two sons, but 12 from not two women, but four. See it? Getting worse, not getting better. And he also has a favorite son by the name of, anybody know? Really into fashion, kind of that thing. Instagram men's fashion blog with a coat. Yeah. Chapter 37, verse 2. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks of his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpha, two of his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Tattletale. Nothing is new there. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw it on Instagram and realized that their father loved him more than any of them and he was getting all sorts of likes, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to them. Skip all the way down to verse 31. Then they, that's all the where there in the original Hebrew, by the way, um, yeah. Then they get, got Joseph's robe slaughtered a goat and dipped the uh, robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, here we go, blatant lie, right to dad's face. We found this 
Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. He recognized it and he said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. You see the irony here. The con man is conned. The player is played. The liar is lied to by his own children. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, mourned for his sons for many days. I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar. So Joseph is actually alive, but he's not well. He was sold into slavery by the other brothers. So are you starting to see a pattern emerge? In Abraham, and then in Isaac, and then in Jacob, and then in Joseph and his brothers, over four generations, we see at least four generational sins. We see lying. Abraham lies about his wife. Abraham, uh, Isaac also lies about his wife. Jacob lies all over the place and is lied to. His sons lie about a whopper of a family secret that goes undetected for upwards of two decades. Then we see misogyny and sexual addiction, the way that women are treated all through the story. And part of that's the ancient Near East, but part of that is the family. Then we see favoritism. Abraham favors Isaac over Ishmael. Isaac favors Jacob over Esau. Jacob favors Joseph. So out of that, of course, we see sibling rivalry, and not just like the usual you know, sibling rivalry, but like really unhealthy, toxic. Ishmael has to go away forever. Jacob steals Esau's inheritance and has to run away to another country in order to survive. Joseph is sold into slavery. You see this pattern. Father Abraham had many sons and they were all really screwed up. That's in like the new version of the song. And this pattern of generational sin It isn't unique to Abraham and his family line. Yet those four sins in particular are, maybe you relate, maybe you don't, but this pattern of from father to son, from mother to daughter, generation to the next, it's not unique at all. It's open to all of humanity. In fact, turn um, for our last time, turn over to Exodus 37. One book over, so Genesis, then Exodus. I'm sorry, not 37, Exodus 34. And I just want to show you, not in story form, but in an idea. Uh, This is a climactic moment in context. If you've ever read Exodus 34, if you were here a few years ago for the God Has a Name um, series, we did an in-depth series on this. My next book is actually on this because scholars argue that this line we're about to read is the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible, meaning the writers of the Bible circle back to this line right here and quote it and allude to it and argue about it and sing it and pray it and doubt it and lament it over and over and over again all through the library of Scripture. So let's just read it really fast. This is when um, God proclaimed his name over Moses on top of Mount Sinai. Verse 6, as he passed in front of Moses proclaiming Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. How beautiful is that? We're not done. Yet, He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Did any of you read that and think, okay, I'm down with the first part. You had me at compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. I'm like, oh man, warm, fuzzy, yes. 
And then did any of you think, what the heck is up with God going MMA on the grandchildren? <laughs> like, how is that justice at all? Well, I don't have time to get all into it. Short version, this can't mean what it sounds like at a face value reading in the English translation. Um, for the main reason is because right here in Exodus, in the Torah, God and Moses say the exact opposite thing later on. So what is going on? Well, there are layers of meaning here, if you're taking notes. The first layer is that a parent's sin has consequences for their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. In fact, that opening line can be translated, the consequences of the sins of the parents are passed down to the children and the children's children. This is the most obvious and axiomatic meeting. It's really hard to argue with. Let's take a well-known example. Even though it's a touchy subject, I just want to go there. If dad and mom get a divorce, it's the children more than anybody who will suffer the fallout. In spite of our culture's ridiculous PR campaign to sell divorce as a danger-free zone for children, most of us know that's propaganda, that's a sham, that's lie, that's not true. The fallout from a marriage gone awry is incalculable. The emotional pain, trust issues, insecurity, confusion over identity, fear of commitment or marriage later in life, some people do okay. Some of you are like, oh, my parents were divorced when I was seven. I'm okay. Other people do not. My point is that when the parents sin, whether it's that analogy or another one, it's the children who are collateral damage, right? And most of us know that is true. But the second layer down is that sin runs in the family. Sin, like your DNA, like the color of your eyes, like the texture of your hair, like that quirky sense of humor you have, it's, it's in your genetic code. It's passed down from parent to child to grandchild to great-grandchild. None of us start off with a blank slate. I want to believe in the innocence of children, but I know it's a myth. Um, I don't think we, we have any newborns in the house tonight. It's quiet, so I'm guessing no. Um, there was a 12-day-old here this morning, Parker Martinez, beautiful little boy. I, I want to believe that Parker is a blank can, but he's not. He was born in the image of God, the fingerprints of the creator all over the creation with self-worth and value and beauty. I believe all of that. I also believe, when I read the teachings of Jesus and the writings of the Bible, that he was born bent, that from his first breath, something was off kilter. But here's the thing. He's not just born bent in the generic sense, He's born bent in a very specific direction based on his mom and his dad and his grandpa and his uncle and his aunt and his family. He's born bent, and so am I, and so are you, in a particular direction. Even today, in what is hands down the most hyper-individualistic society ever, we have sayings like, like father, like son, like mother, like daughter. Um, the, a the apple doesn't fall what? Far from the tree. Even in America, we talk like that. We all know this is true. In high school or in college, we vow, I will never be like my father, or I will never be like my mother, or I will never be like my aunt, or whatever. And then, just wait. Some of you are thinking, yeah, I said that a few hours ago. Wait for it. <laughs> wait till you hit 25, 30, 35. You start to see those exact same patterns resurface in your own life, and you think, ah, 
what the heck? Some of us just can't escape our last name. The final layer down where you kind of hit bedrock is this idea. You can break free from sin that goes back for generations. That's the good news. It really is gospel. You can break free from sin that goes back for generation. There's a Hebrew idiom that's lost in the translation to English, but it is so like Bible nerd cool. The idiom in Hebrew is to the third and fourth, which is meaningless in the English language. In Hebrew, it has the basic idea of for a little while. Now, the word, scholars point out that the word generation there, at the very end of the third and fourth generation, the word generation is not actually there in the original language. It was added by the translators to help you and I make sense of a weird Hebrew idiom to the third and fourth that is meaningless to you and I. But scholars point out, a lot of scholars point out that there's kind of a poetic rhythm to that verse, Exodus 34, 6 through 7, and that whatever comes after maintaining love to thousands should also come after to the third and fourth. So it should be translated either maintaining love to thousands of generations, but punishing to the third and fourth generation. Or it should be translated maintaining love to thousands, but punishing to the third and the fourth. Okay, you see it? It's a word picture. Imagine in your mind's eye, your imagination, uh, you know, Lady Justice, Washington, D.C., the scale, you know, she's blind, justice. Now imagine a scale with God as the judge, and on one side is his justice, and on the other side is his mercy. And there's a tension there, right, between the justice and the mercy of God that we read about all through the scriptures that we experience in our own life, right? And in this word picture, on the justice side, picture three or four weights. On the mercy side, picture thousands. So it's not like this. It's like this. It's fr- the scale is freighted to the side of mercy. How much justice is there? Well, to the third or the fourth. How much mercy? Thousands. Like it's freighted. Yeah, there's justice with God. But his baseline emotion toward you and I is that of mercy. It's the heart posture of a father or a mother to a child, to a little girl or a little boy. The point here is that there's mercy waiting for you. You can break free from sin that goes back to your mother, your father, your grandmother, your grandfather, farther back than that. And when I say sin, make sure that you think about sin in at least three dimensions, okay? Sin done by you, creating shame or guilt or regret or addiction or the aftermath of your own, what was I thinking when I did that or when I did the other? But not just that, also sin done to you, abuse, betrayal, divorce, the affair, whatever, creating emotional pain, insecurity, confusion, anger, bitterness, rage, and not only that, but also sin done around you, not done by you or to you, but around you, in your family of origin, in your culture, in your country, in your day and age, in your generation, um, that, you know, was creating some kind of trauma in your life or lies that you started to believe about the truth and reality or an open door, a portal to demonic influence over your life or a curse over your family line or something like that. Think about sin in at least three dimensions, done by you, done to you, and done around you. All of that can be broken. Yeah, but you don't know what my dad did to me, all of it. But you don't know, I was 16 and all of it. But you don't know, I was there when all of it. 
all of it. There's a process, it's a thing, well, all of it can be broken in the mercy and the power of the living God. Your past has shaped your present, but it does not have to determine your future. So, how do we begin to go on this journey? Well, the first step is just to identify generational sins in your family and in your own life. And for some of you, it's really easy, but for a lot of you, it takes a little while. And the basic idea is just that you can't change what you don't see. You can't change in your kind of apprenticeship to Jesus. You can't grow mature out of and change and out of things that you're blind to or you're numb to or indifferent about or you don't even see in your own family line or in your own life. To do this, our practice will take you through how to make your own genogram, if that's like just a, what is that? Um, a genogram is a visual map of your family tree that's used to identify patterns in your family line, both good and bad. Um, here's an hyper-edited version of mine. I, I was going to show you my real one but, and like air all my dirty laundry, but then I just thought about my grandma and I just thought she would not, that would be really awkward at Christmas. And then I thought of my aunt and my uncle and then I thought about my mom and I thought about the podcast and thousands of people and I thought, you know what, let's edit this sucker. So here's an hyper-edited, there's not really anything on there. But when I first did this, um, a few years ago, I was on a sabbatical, and I had started therapy, and I started to kind of deal with my past. And I come from a great family, but there's stuff there. When I first did this, I had a number of aha moments. I started to see patterns in my own life. Um, perfectionism, if you know me, is really my main challenge in life overall. And in my apprenticeship to Jesus, I'm a type one on the Enneagram, like high, high, high perfectionist and it leaks unhealth all over my life and in every relationship, people I'm close to. And I'm way better than I used to be, but I'm still in process. Now, when I first did this, I realized, oh my gosh, this is not like unique to me. This goes back generations. My mom, who's amazing if you know her, um, is or really was when she was younger and she's changed through her discipleship to Jesus, but she was really a perfectionist when I was a kid. My grandfather, um, her dad is like hardcore perfectionist. I mean like I loved his house. Like his house, was there was not a single thing out of place. Like if you were to like drop a like rice on the ground. It was like death, like it was end, the end of the world. I found out doing this, my great-grandfather, his father, was this um, apparently really successful entrepreneur out in Eastern Oregon who was just a mean, unhappy jerk. And uh, he was brilliant, he uh, started this farm. Apparently, if I understand the story right, he was the first one. You know the rose parade that we do every year? You know this actually not roses on the floats, it's actually um, peonies? That was his idea, he said they look exactly the same, they grow better in our climate. So he started this farm, started to grow peonies, brought the railroad into his farm, shipped them over to Portland, made a killing on it. But he was just this mean, unhappy jerk. And I was emailing with my mom, and she said, everybody always said the same thing, that at his farm, there was not a single weed out of a place. I thought, that's my kind of farmer right there. It's in the family line right there. Not a single weed out of place. Come over to my house. It is like not a single thing out of place because I'm in therapy, and I'm really a mess, and I'm a perfectionist, all right? So 
my point is, I started to see all sorts of things, you know, mental illness goes back multiple generations, alcoholism, sexism, and then positive things, entrepreneurship, him and others, we have an Oregon homesteader in our family line, lots of kind of self-made men and women, pastoral leadership, I didn't realize this, my dad's a pastor, um, of my four siblings, three of the four of us are in pastoral leadership, but I didn't realize I have a great-great-grandfather who was a circuit-riding Methodist preacher, I'm a huge John Wesley fan, huge, like, Methodism, old school fan. I thought, man, it's in the blood. Again, that's awesome. I'm just really glad I don't have to get on a horse after we're done tonight because that's, that's not my style. Now, my point is that as I was working through this, some of this was like, oh, wow, like, okay, grandpa has the same stuff or grandma has the same stuff. But I had a number of aha moments. One was, you know, as I was writing this up, I started to do a little listening prayer. Let me put that into your practice. And I just asked God, is there, is there anything else that I'm missing here, that I'm blind to or oblivious about, a generational sin in my own life? And I immediately had come to mind from the Holy Spirit, um, anger. Star Mark, you have an anger problem. Really? Like, really? <laughs> Me? Are you sure you have the right guy? Like, I, and um, in hindsight, it's like, oh yeah, of course. But I was oblivious to it because my anger isn't like a, you know, punch a hole in the wall. Kind of, I don't think I could do that even if I wanted to. Um, but it's not that kind of an anger. It's a perfectionism anger. I don't get angry. I'm always angry. <laughs> it's just like there <laughs> below, <laughs> below the surface. And I don't like erupt and scream, you know, but it just leaks out. In criticism, I can be judgmental. Some of you picked that up when I talk. Um, I-, I can be condescending. You're like, he feels and sounds kind of condescending. I am kind of condescending. You think you're better than me. I am better than you. Um, <laughs> like it leaks out a sarcastic dig here, constructive criticism. Every, like it just leaks. There, there's an anger that leaks out of me. Now, I've actually come a long ways, I think, over the last few years, and I've really... Um, started to grow, mature, and experience transformation in that area in particular in my life. That started in this moment. I mean, I'm not there yet, and if you know me, you know I'm not there yet, but I really have come a long ways. My point is that I hope that you have, as you work through this practice, aha moments like that. And remember, in that moment, like the goal here, and please, especially if you're a millennial, which is just a few of you, please, the goal here is not to blame shift. It's not a witch hunt to like, you know, air dirty laundry for mommy or daddy. In fact, if you, a week from now, are bitter at your mom or your dad or your grandfather, you're doing it wrong. If you're doing it right, it actually should generate compassion in you. I went back and redid my genogram the last couple of weeks, and I went, I never knew my great-grandparents, um, but I went back and, you know, did a bunch of kind of research, and I did my great-grandparents and my great-great-grandparents, and it was just eye-opening for me. And I started to understand my family for the first time. And I started to understand and really have compassion for a few family members that over the years were just kind of hard for me to get along with. And I started to see that person in a whole new light. So hopefully, even if you come from a really unhealthy or toxic home, hopefully this will not generate anger or bitterness in you, but rather generate compassion for yourself, for your mom, for your dad, for your family as a whole, and allow yourself, as you open yourself up to the Spirit of God, allow Him to catalyze healing and freedom in your life. Now, on a practical note, um, 
We worked really hard as a team on our next practice. Everything's available at practicingtheway.org. We put together a genogram workbook for you. Make sure you print it off before your community wheel in the coming week. And uh, we also made a little tutorial video or two for how to make your own genogram. It's all there on the site. For those of you listening to the podcast, you know who you are. Um, Feel free to grab your house church or your small group or your dorm or your roommate or your spouse. Get together over the next four or five weeks. Set a night, share a meal, and work through the practice. It's all free. We hope it's helpful. I was just, I was on the East Coast yesterday in Toronto, Canada, and I had a number of people come up to me and say, hey, we listen to the podcast. I had one person come up to me and say, hey, I'm listening to your podcast, listening to Practicing the Way. It's changed my life, changed the way that I follow Jesus, and myself and my small group, we're all doing silence and solitude right now. I thought it was so cool. So um, that, that said, that's the practical step, I want to end really fast on Jesus. Turn to Mark chapter 5. I know we're just about out of time, but I just want to read to you one short story before we wrap up from the life of Jesus. Mark chapter 5. Let's jump right in if you have it open to verse 24. A large crowd followed and pressed around Jesus. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. It's a very long time especially in a day and age when your life expectancy was, you know, 30, 33, something like that. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and he asked, who touched my clothes? Now, pause there. Imagine if you're the woman, okay? You, according to the Torah, are unclean because you have a flow of blood out of your body, which means, according to the Torah, you're not supposed to be in the crowd at all, okay? You're unclean. You're not supposed to be there. And not only that, but in Jewish culture, you're not supposed to touch a man, unless if it's your husband, and never in public, and you're definitely not supposed to touch a rabbi or a holy man. So here's a woman who is desperate, who's breaking all of the rules, even though she's unclean, she's there, my guess is, hiding shawl over the face in the crowd. She reached out, she touched Jesus, she touched a man, a holy man. My guess is that right now she is scared to death. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. You've got to love it. So nobody says, no, nobody says anything. So Jesus just lets the awkward silence go. Finally, the woman is like, oh my gosh, I can't take it anymore, or whatever. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear. She's just scared told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, I love that language, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. I love this story, but have you ever read this story and thought to yourself, man, why did Jesus embarrass her like that? Why call her out in front of everybody? My guess is she's scared to death, she's embarrassed, she's been through so much, she's vulnerable in that patriarchal culture. Why, Jesus, why did you embarrass her like that? Why did you call her out? Why not just turn around and like ask Holy Spirit, who was it? Oh, and just like wink at her, you know, just a little <laughs> nod. 
DM me later, we'll chat, you know? Why call her out? Why make her expose herself? She's already set free. Why make her expose herself to, all, to the entire community? And honestly, I don't know, I don't know the answer. I do know that at a, in the Greek language, there's, there's two different words there. First, she is set free. Then at the end, after she said, kind of open to everybody, it's me, that's when we read she's healed. That's the same word for salvation. It can be translated healed or saved or made whole. So something happened through that exchange. And I don't know why, but my theory is that it's because her sickness went back so far and it was woven so deep into the fabric of her life that she needed Jesus and she needed her community to know about her healing. It wasn't enough to have a private kind of religious experience with God. She needed Jesus and she needed her community. I think the same is true for you. In dealing with your past, you need Jesus and you need the people to your right and to your left. This is not a journey that you and I can go on alone. If you're um, not in a Bridgetown community, hopefully that is a safe place for you. If you're not in a community, please sign up for the next basics class and let us help walk you into a community in your neighborhood. If you're in one, but it's brand new, or for whatever reason, you don't feel safe there to open up and share, first off, let us help you with that. Um, but I would just say find a friend or a sibling or a mom or a mentor to walk through this with. Um, if you're not in therapy, I can't say enough good. If you can find a good therapist, can't say enough good about therapy. We have a list over at the information booth of recommended therapists in town. Honestly, so many people at Bridgetown Church are in therapy. I don't know what that says about me or our church, but I'm in therapy all the time. It's life-changing for me. I kind of feel like the Christian counseling industry in Portland should tithe to Bridgetown or something because I feel like we send people every single week. We're just really high, really high view of that. But here's, here's why this, so if you have not started that journey, now's a great time to start it. Here's why I say that. Don't go on this journey alone. If you go back all by yourself, the odds are that you will open a can of worms, you will open yourself up to the enemy in ways that are unhealthy or toxic, open yourself up to lies, not to truth, and to whatever. You need to go back, but go back with Jesus and go back with your community in order to experience the in-depth healing and freedom that I really believe God has for you. To end, um, you know, I think a healthy church, there's no such thing as a perfect church, and if there was, we fail. But I think a healthy church should take you places that you would not go by yourself. And one of the, few pla very pla one of the places that very few of us want to revisit is our past. I doubt very many of you woke up this morning and you're like, what, what do I want to do today? I, I want to deal with my past. <laughs> I want to go back, think about my family of origin, that a really painful moment when my dad walked out in the family when I was six, a genogram. Yeah, I want to call up my grandmother and ask her a list of awkward questions from that workbook and say, Grandma, were you promiscuous before <laughs> Grandpa? Was there an affair ever in you? Um, were you ever on Prozac? I like what? Any, any of you want to like call up Grandma tomorrow night? Grandma, how's the yam salad? Let me ask you. Did you sleep around, you know? <laughs> I'm guessing the answer to that is no, right? Hopefully it's no. If the answer is yes, please get in therapy right now, okay? <laughs> but, but, listen, my guess is that a lot of you did wake up this morning and you felt stuck. 
You felt stuck in your emotional and spiritual growth and maturity. You felt kind of up against a concrete wall with no door, no clear way through. You felt stuck in a holding pattern, kind of in orbit, in patterns, I don't know, from your family of origin, from your life, ways of thinking, ways of feeling, ways of doing relationship that you know are not healthy. And, and, it's, and, and you're confused, and it's a mix, and it's a jumble. You're not exactly sure a way forward. You just you felt stuck. If that's you, you are not alone. And the call of Jesus is for you to break free, to get unstuck. My prayer for you and for me, for your community, for my community over the next month is may God grace you with the courage to, as my therapist says it, to do the hard work. Some of us don't want to do the hard work. I don't blame you. But to do the hard work. Can you imagine how scared that woman must have been? But she had the courage to reach out, to touch, to stand up, it was me, to open up to her community, and through that, to experience healing and freedom. That is what I believe God has for you as you go back to go forward. Let's stand and pray. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Practicing the Way. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit that exists because of the generosity of listeners like you. To support our work, join The Circle, our community of monthly givers. To give or to learn more about running our resources in your church or small group, visit practicingtheway.org.